0: My text tonight is found in 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, the first 14 verses of that chapter. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive a little maid out of the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. One went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus saith the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. It came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill or to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. It was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee, and thou shalt be clean." But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abanah and Farper, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. His servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he said to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, According to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This story is one that is an old story found here in Second Kings five, and it occurred hundreds of years before Jesus was born, but I believe it is a lesson a, a story from which we can draw many lessons. Leprosy was a dread disease. Naaman was a great man, captain of the Assyrian army. He was a mighty man of valor. Valor is that courage and bravery be above and beyond the call of duty. And he was a very courageous man, a mighty man of valor. He was a victorious soldier, had been out on a campaign and he had successfully liberated Syria from Israel's dominion. God had given deliverance unto Syria by him, but he was a leper. Now just as Naaman was a leper, and that's a dread disease, so all of us are sinners, all mankind. Naaman was a leper, but all of us have become sinners. By sinning. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We're not born in sin. But we become a sinner just like Adam did. When God made Adam, he saw that everything that he has made and said that it was good. But when he made man, he said it's very good. And so, Adam was not made a sinner. He was made upright. He was made acceptable and righteous before God. How did he become a sinner? Yielding to temptation. By yielding to the devil's temptations, He sinned by committing sin. That's how all of us become sinners. By committing sin. All of us. Isaiah 53 and 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. He didn't say we're born astray. But we're all gone astray. The rest of the verse says, They are turned, everyone, to his own way. That's not the way he's born. He wasn't born astray. But we're turned astray. Gone astray. Turned to his own way. And so all of us become sinners. Only God could cure leprosy. There was no human remedy for it. And when Naaman took the letter to the king of Israel, the king said, Am I God? To kill or to make a lie? In other words, I could just as easily kill Naaman and raise him back from the dead as I could cure leprosy. One would be just as easy as the other. Only God could cure leprosy. And there's no human remedy for sin. No man on earth can forgive your sins against God. Now he can forgive the human part of it. The fact that you've transgressed against him, he can forgive that but he can't forgive your sin against God Almighty. He can't stand in God's place and absolve you of guilt of transgressing His will. Only God can forgive our sins. Just as only God could cure leprosy, only God can forgive our sins. Paul wrote to a young preacher named Timothy, and he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all accept. Everybody ought to believe it. All acceptation. What is it, Paul, that everybody ought to believe? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1, 15. Paul said Christ had to come and save us. When Joseph was told that the baby that Mary would give birth to was going to be the Messiah, he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's no human remedy for it. It took Jesus Christ coming into this world to be our Savior. But how did Naaman learn about that prophet over in Israel? A little maid. A little maid. I don't know how big she was. The Bible calls her a little maid. A little maid. Naaman had gone out and had captured a girl over in the land of Israel and had brought her over to the land of Syria. And she was a little maid. And he gave her as a slave to his wife. She waited on Naaman's wife. And that little maid told Naaman's wife about the prophet that was in Israel. There wasn't a New Testament then. It hadn't been written. And the Old Testament was not all written at that time. She didn't even have a copy of the entire Old Testament to carry with it. It hadn't all been written then. And that little girl a little maid knew enough about God to tell about him over there in the land, in that foreign country where she was carried away, a prisoner of war. Boys and girls, if you perish the thought that this had ever happened, but if some country overruns the USA and carries away captive prisoners of war, our boys and girls, carries them off to some foreign country, could you boys and girls tell them about God? If they wouldn't let you carry a Bible with you, could you remember enough that you'd already learned? I wish I knew more about that home in which that little girl grew up. She must have had a godly father and mother to train her about God. She never had seen anybody cured of leprosy. How do you know that, Brother Nichols? Because Jesus said in Luke 4, 16 that there were many lepers in the days of Elisha the prophet in the land of Israel. But only one was healed. Naaman's the one that was healed, and so he's the only one. Jesus said only one was healed. She never had seen God heal, uh, a prophet of God heal a leper. Never had seen one. But she knew God could do it. How much faith do our boys and girls today have in God? The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who spared Daniel in the den of lions. The God who spared Jonah. Even when the whale or great fish that God prepared swallowed him, the God who provided miraculously for the Israelites while they journeyed through the wilderness, the clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. He gave them manna, gave them water out of a rock. She knew those Old Testament stories that had preceded her. And she knew what God could do. And she said, Would God that my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he could recover him of his leprosy. How'd she know that? She must have had good home training, good upbringing. And I wonder about our boys and girls today. Could you, if you were carried away from the United States, a prisoner of war, carried off to some other country, Russia, for example, or China, or India, could you tell them about Jesus. Could you tell them what Jesus wants you to do to be saved? Could you tell them about the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood? How much do you remember about what the Bible says? We have the whole book, Old and New Testaments, in written form. How much do you know about it? There are some boys and girls who know more about baseball players than they do the Twelve Apostles. There are some boys and girls who know more about movie stars and television actors and actresses, than they do about the characters in the New Testament. There are some boys and girls who know more about movies on television, drama, soap opera, than they do about the New Testament church. What about our boys and girls? Are we training them? Is it because mama and daddy don't talk much about the Bible that they're growing up in abysmal ignorance of the Word of God? Is it because we no longer sit down and read the Bible together as a family? We don't pray together? Is it because we don't even study our Sunday school lessons together anymore? Is it because we're too busy to train our boys and girls? God said, and ye fathers, daddy this is you and me, and ye fathers, Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We need homes that will train and teach God's word to its own family. I used to think that Noah was an abysmal failure. He was a sad disappointment to God. I don't believe that anymore. Noah was a phenomenal success. He did more than some of us are doing. Some preachers and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers don't save their own family, but Noah did. And Noah lived in such a corrupt world that God couldn't tolerate it any longer. It was so wicked all around them that God said, I'm going to destroy a man whom I've created I'm off the face of the earth. I'm just going to save Noah and his family. And yet Noah saved his family. We need to try to save those dearest to us. This little maid told about the prophet that was in Samaria. And we need personal workers today. I do not believe that we're converting very many people. I know we're not at Jasper. We're not converting very many people from the pulpit preaching. Nearly everyone I've baptized since I've been at Jasper. And this is the fourth year I've been with that congregation where my father preached for 43 years. I, I think nearly everyone I baptized has been the result of personal study, sitting in his home, studying God's word with him, showing them the film strips, taking the Bible and reading cases of conversion, studying the open Bible investigation with him, teaching them the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, rightly dividing the word of truth. Nearly everyone I baptized has been the result of personal study instead of just pulpit preaching. And I guess that's true nearly everywhere. Jesus said the seed is the Word of God. We're not going to convert any more people than we teach, and we won't convert everyone that we teach, but the more we teach, the more people we can expect will be converted to Christ. And we need personal work. And the elders of the church right here at Talladega don't have days long enough to do all the personal work that this congregation needs to be doing. The elders and deacons and preacher all together don't have enough time to do all the work that God wants the whole congregation to do. It means that every individual ought to feel an intense personal responsibility before God to do as much personal work as he possibly can. James 5 is a very encouraging verse. He said, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one, convert him. There's the possibility that you, just one person, can convert somebody. One, convert him. Let him know that he which converted the sinner. I know he's an erring member of the church, but God called him a sinner anyhow. That he that converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death hide a multitude of sins. If you've had CPR training and you could save a man who had had a heart attack or uh, lost consciousness for some other reason, and you could save his life, wouldn't you rejoice in that? You saved his physical life. If you were driving down the highway and you saw somebody drowning in a lake near the highway, and you could dive in and rescue him and bring him to safety, wouldn't you be glad you saved his life? If you're driving down the highway and find a car that's on fire and you can pull the driver out, he's there unconscious, and you open the door and jerk at him out, rescue him and save his life, wouldn't you be happy that you'd saved his life? His soul is worth a million times what the body is, what the physical life is. Why not try to save his soul? Designate yourself as a committee of one. You don't have to wait till the church starts a personal work program. Start your own. Be a self-starter instead of having to be jumped off with a jumper cable of some kind. Be a self-starter. Be a personal worker for Jesus. God needs personal workers in the church today. But this maid plainly told him about a prophet in Israel, said, I would to God that my Lord, speaking of Naaman, were with the prophet that's in Samaria, he would recover him of his leprosy. But Naaman made a mistake. Naaman went to a king. And I call him an ignorant king. He wasn't ignorant in the sense that he didn't know his ABCs. I don't mean that. But he was ignorant about how Naaman could be cured of leprosy. He's ignorant on that point. He may know a lot of other things, but he didn't know how Naaman could be healed. So he's an ignorant king in that way. Brother A.G. Freed, one of the co-founders of Freed Hardiman College said, I'd rather my daughter have to learn her ABCs in heaven than to be able to quote Greek and Latin in hell. We need to remember that. It makes no difference how much more you know and what all else you know if you don't know Christ. You're ignorant of the most important thing in the world. And so he went to an ignorant king. And we need to learn from that, that we'd better turn to Christ and let him tell us how to be saved. Instead of going to the preacher, he may not know, or some personal friend who may not know, or a relative, mother and daddy, well, it may be that they're members of some church you can't even find in the Bible. Instead of going to somebody that my neighbor has a lot of confidence in, why not just go to Christ and the apostles and learn from the New Testament what to do to be saved? Go to the Word of God and if some friend can guide you to the Bible, fine, but if he takes you away from the Bible, don't you listen to it. You listen to Christ and his apostles and learn from him. The Hebrew writer tells us that those in the Old Testament who disobeyed God received a just recompense of reward. And then he asked, how much sore a punishment do we deserve? We ought to give them more earnest heed than they did to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. For if the words spoken by angels are steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? We saw last night the great commission. That's when the Lord first spoke that great salvation first spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us, by them that heard him. Hebrews 2 and verses 1 to 3. So we need to learn from Christ. Listen to Jesus. Jesus taught the apostles, not his will, but the Father's will. He said, my doctrine's not mine, but it's his that sent me. He gave me a commandment of what I should say and what I should do. And so Jesus spoke the Father's will to the people. But eventually, Naaman did finally correct his mistake and find out that the king didn't know. The prophet sent a word to him, a message to him, and said, let him come down to me. Told the king, said, send him down here to me. He'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman drives up with his horses and his chariot. I can imagine he's in front of Elisha, the prophet's home, and he expects Elisha to come out to him, and Elisha disappointed him. He didn't even go in person. He went out, he sent, he sent one of his servants out there. Sent a messenger. The prophet sent a messenger. He sent one of his servants out there to tell him what to do. Now do you know that's the way Christ is doing today. He's not coming in person. Sometimes people are taught to expect some miracle. And they expect Jesus to come. And I've had them tell me that Jesus appeared right here at the foot of my bed and told me I saved. Uh, Jesus didn't come to you. You think he did. They're honest. When my dad was 16 years old, he was reared in a denominational home. And when he was 16 years old, he joined the denomination that his mother and dad had brought him up in. Didn't know any better. And I asked him about his, his experience. Tell me about your salvation or what you thought was salvation. He told me about how he came to the altar and they prayed for him and prayed that he'd be saved. And I said, well, did you get salvation? He said, no, I just got a, good foo- a big fooling. He said, I had a good feeling. I felt good when they began to tell me that I'd always been a good boy. I'd never been a drunkard, never had been rowdy, and uh, I'd always tried to behave myself. My mother and dad would whip me if I didn't. And so I said, uh, they made me believe it I was already saved. He said, I just got a big fooling. had a good feeling, but it turned out to be just a big fooling. And that's what people are taught. It wasn't many years until Brother C.A. Wheeler came into that community and preached in a meeting. And my father was baptized the first week he ever heard the gospel in its ancient purity, simplicity. meeting started on Sunday morning and went through the following Saturday. And he was baptized on Saturday of that meeting. Christ did not go in person. He sent the apostles out. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And then Christ said that the things that uh, Paul said, the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. And here's Christ is sending us on and on and on. Each generation is to teach the oncoming generation. And thus Christ sent the messenger. He's not going to come in person. You may think he did, but he didn't. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all he was seen of me, Paul. Paul said, I saw him last, nobody else is going to see him here on earth. It's after me, I saw him last of all. And this had been many years after his conversion. He didn't appear to Paul to convert him. He appeared, Jesus said, I've appeared to you to make you a minister and a witness, qualify him to be an apostle. He said, Am I not an apostle? Well, are you qualified? Have I not seen Christ Jesus the Lord? First Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9.1 And so the reason Jesus appeared to him was to make him an apostle, not to save him. And Christ therefore sent the messengers out. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Is his instruction. The message was very simple. Go, you can't misunderstand that, that means don't stay here. Wash, or it's quoted also dip, go wash seven times Not three, not twenty, seven. Seven times and you'll be clean. Now you can't can't misunderstand that. Naaman didn't misunderstand it. You go to the River Jordan and you dip yourself seven times in that water, you'll be clean. He understood it. Back during the Hoover, President Hoover's administration, there was a postmaster in Birmingham named Bass, Postmaster Bass way back in the Hoover administration. I, don't, I didn't know him. I don't remember that administration, but I, I, I heard the story. This man went with one of his friends who was an insurance salesman, went to hear John T. Lewis preach. Brother Lewis preached, and in the sermon he used Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. On the way home postmaster Bass and his insurance salesman friend were talking about the sermon and the insurance salesman said Mr Bass I don't see I just can't see Mark 16:16 like brother Lewis does and the postmaster said to him I'm not going to lie about it I understand Mark 16:16 just like John T Lewis does the difference between me and John T. Lewis about Mark sixteen sixteen is not whether I see it like he does or not. The difference between us is he believes it and I don't. And said, You can see it just like he did too, if you read the verse. Now the difference is not whether we see it alike or not, the difference is whether you believe it or not. That's what Mr. Bass said. Brother Lewis later saw Mr. Bass in the elevator downtown one day. And he said, uh, Mr. Bass, our mutual friend told me about your remark. I wonder if you really said what he told me he did. He said, well, I don't mind telling you it frankly and honestly. I told him, I see and understand Mark sixteen sixteen just as clear as you do, just like you do. The difference between me and you is you believe it and I don't. He admitted that that's exactly what he said. Now, friends... You can't misunderstand the instruction that Naaman was given. Go to the river Jordan and dip seven times, you'll be clean. And he went away angry because of that. But you know that wasn't a bit clearer than the Great Commission is. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. I hope you'll pardon several references I've made to my father. But uh, he was in a meeting under the tent in Paducah, Kentucky, many years ago. And uh, during that meeting, he made the statement that every verse in the Bible that mentions baptism and salvation, or any other term that equals salvation, every verse that mentions baptism and salvation in the same passage, the baptism comes before the salvation every time. He said, him, when he made that statement, there's a young man, about 22 or 3 years old, looked like he'd just about out of college, sat back there on the outside, just at the eight, last chair under the tent, and he just shook his head vigorously. Dad thought, well, now, he may not have understood what I said. And so he repeated, he said, every verse in the New Testament, that mentions baptism and salvation or any other expression that means the same thing as being saved. Every one of them puts the baptism before the salvation. That man just adamantly shook his head. That can't be so. He said, oh, now let's just turn to the Bible and see if I've told you the truth about it. He didn't mention the man's reaction. But he just started in and quoted every verse in the New Testament where baptism and salvation are mentioned in the same passage. Mark 3.3, Matthew 3.3, and uh, Mark 4, and Luke 3, and Mark 16.16, and Acts 2.38, and uh, Romans 6.3 and 4, Galatians 3.26 and 27, and other passages, 1 Peter 3.21, every verse, I think those are the only ones where they're mentioned together, but at least every verse. And when he got through, he again stated it, that the baptism come before the salvation. And this young man sat there nodding his head, and as soon as they stood to sing, he came forward and was baptized. A man was honest. He did not know until that hour that believing and being baptized are both before salvation, before it's promised us. And So Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. But you know, that's not like Naaman thought it was going to be. The way God's prophet told him to be healed wasn't like Naaman imagined it would be. He said, I thought the prophet, the man of God, would come out here and strike his hand over the place and stand there and call on the name of the Lord as God, and I'd be healed. He already had it figured out like he wanted it to be, and it turned out to be different from that. And it was not like he thought it. And you know, many today prefer an altar service. They'd like to come down and be pray or be prayed for. They used to call it the mourner's bench. Now they call it a prayer service or an altar service or a prayer tent. I've been to Billy Graham's campaigns and some of them, and and I've seen them and people respond and they'll say, we have a separate tent over here or a room over here in another tent where the curtains are up there. You'll have privacy. We'll take you over there and we'll pray for you. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. The Bible didn't tell the sinners to repent and pray or be prayed for. It said, repent and be baptized. But many would prefer an altar service to the very uh, teaching of Acts 2.38. Peter told them when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins." And they did it that very day. 3,000 of them, the first day it was preached to them. But Naaman didn't like what he heard. It made him mad. He went away in a rage. There are some today that get mad when the preacher tells them what the Bible says. It's been a long time since I saw anybody get furious and mad and stomp out of a church house. But I have seen him once or twice in my lifetime. Just get so mad he wouldn't even sit in there and hear the gospel preached. I told Brother Rogers about a man that got up and walked out on me one time. And I overtook him before he got home. He walked about three miles to his house. And I picked him up about halfway home after the service was over. He was still so mad he wouldn't even ride in the car with me. Just stood on the running board. That Way back down. This was back in the late 30s. And stood on the running board and uh, rode on the outside. He wouldn't get in. He let his wife and children get in the car with my mother and me. But uh, he wouldn't even get in with us and ride with us mad, but it didn't change the Bible. It's still true. Suppose the doctor has the test back that tell you that you have a brain tumor. You can get mad all you want to, but that doesn't change the fact, does it? You could argue with him and get mad about it, but I guess I'd want a second opinion, but uh, at least uh, getting mad is not going to change the facts. If there's a brain tumor, it's there not going to change the situation. And so, instead of having our minds made up and like we think we're going to be saved, we'd better take what God's Word said. The Holy Spirit guided them to preach the truth in the second chapter of Acts. The remedy that Naaman was told by the prophet seemed foolish to him. But you know, in Isaiah 55, we're told, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto God. He'll have mercy upon him and our God, and he'll abundantly pardon. Why? He said, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so just because a remedy seemed foolish, didn't make it so. That was God's way of putting him to a test and testing his faith there today. Those who seem, say that baptism seem foolish. I don't see any sense in being baptized. I don't see any point to it. I don't see any connection in it. We should turn, Brother Rogers, to John 19 and read verse 31 beginning. Jesus was crucified to, to take away our sins. Look at John 19 and beginning with verse 31 and see what happened. This is the day Jesus was crucified. The day he's dying on the cross, and he's almost dead now. It's been several hours. He's there on the cross six hours altogether. been several hours since he's nailed to the cross at nine o'clock that morning. Now listen to what happened that day, Brother Rogers.
1: The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain on the cross upon the Sabbath, for the day of that Sabbath was a high day, ask of Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. They
0: wanted permission to go out there and break the... They already nailed those thieves to the cross and Jesus to the cross. They want permission to break their legs. You can just imagine the crunch of the bones as they went out there with clubs or rocks and or hammers and, and broke the legs of those thieves to make them hurry up and die quicker so they could bury them before sundown. How brutal it was. So they got permission from Pilate to do that
1: and what happened? The soldiers therefore came and break the legs of the first and of the other that was crucified with him.
0: Remember one soldier on either side of Jesus, and so they're not dead yet. And they broke the legs of one and then of the other on the other side of Jesus. What happened when they came to Jesus?
1: But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already. That he was nearly dead? uh, Dead already. Was dying? No, dead already.
0: Was dead already. Did they go ahead and break his legs anyhow?
1: They break not his legs. Well, what did they do? Howbeit one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and straightway there came out blood and water.
0: What verse is that that says the blood was shed? 34. What verse is it that says he was dead?
1: 33.
0: He was dead in 33. His blood was shed in his death then, what? In 34. If I ever am saved by the blood, and there's not any other way for me to be saved, I'd have to come to where his blood was shed. But it was in his death. He was dead already. Now, how do I reach his death? Turn to Romans 6, Brother Rogers, and read Romans 6, 3. And see how we get to the blood that was shed in his death.
1: Or, are ye all, or are ye ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Into whose death? Christ Jesus.
0: His death. You're baptized into Christ's death. That's where the blood was shed. No wonder Jesus could say, He that believeth and is baptized, that put him into the death of Christ, where the blood was shed. He'll contact the blood. Shall be saved. The blood does the saving. The blood saves. But you don't reach that blood until you obey the gospel including being baptized. Now, baptism may seem foolish to men, but that's in God's plan. God chose the foolishness of, of men, things that may seem foolish in the eyes of the world, to confound the wise. Now, it may seem foolish, but it's God's plan, God's wisdom. And then, Naaman seems to have had the idea that the power's in the water. The river Jordan is a muddy stream. I guess you, most of you have seen the Mississippi River. You know how muddy it is usually. It's swift. But you know how much it drops in an average mile? The average mile of the Mississippi River, it falls three feet. One mile downstream will be three feet lower than it is up here. You know what the average of the Jordan River is? 22 feet to the mile. Seven times sharper descent. Average. If you go up above the Sea of Galilee for about 15 miles, it averages 65 feet to the mile in that mountain country up there. And it's a muddy river. Rushing on down to the Dead Sea, it's a muddy river. Over at Damascus, The waters are beautiful blue like the Mediterranean Sea. Just beautiful blue water. The Abana and Farper flowing right through the, Abana flows right through the city of Damascus. And beautiful blue water. Naaman said, are not Abana and Farper rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Jordan, of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? You see, he thought the power, seems to have thought the power's in the water. What water was going to heal him. God was going to heal him when he obeyed. And the power is not in the water either to save us. God saves us, but he promised that salvation after we're baptized. Just like he promised Naaman, you dip and then you'll be clean. He seemed to have preferred some great thing. And there are a lot of people today who reject the simple terms of salvation set forth in the New Testament because the conditions are too simple. I must believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I must repent of my sins because of my faith. And because of my faith in Christ, I must be baptized, buried into his death, where I reach his blood. That's too simple. i would just reject that. I'd rather have something mystical and, and some mysterious feeling, and I'd rather have the feeling in my heart. They don't know that the Bible heart's not down here in the chest. It's the seat of the intellect and the willpower and the conscience and the volition. But they reject the Bible because it's too simple. Naaman eventually was prevailed upon to obey God. And he went to the river Jordan. He dipped himself seven times according to the saying of man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. Doesn't a little baby have pretty skin? Ordinarily, ordinarily. The rule is, doesn't a baby have pretty skin? Naaman, a grown man, a captain in the army, had a baby's complexion. How beautiful it must have been. God healed him totally. Rid of his leprosy forever. Now God cleanses us from our sin. When by faith in Christ we obey him God saves us. Christ's blood washes our sins away when we obey him by faith. Paul said you have obeyed from the heart. Your heart was involved in it. You did it sincerely. From the heart you have obeyed that form of doctrine. which The doctrine is Christ died for our sins. We died of the love of sins. Christ was buried and we're buried with him in baptism. Christ was raised and we arise to walk a new life. Christian life. If you're not a Christian tonight I plead with you by faith in Jesus come and obey him I persuade I'm persuaded that there are many people who are honest of heart and you just as sincere as Naaman was now that you see the truth